Today, I am thrilled to be sitting down with author Rivka Galchin to discuss her latest novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Rivka Galchin is the recipient of a William Zoroyan International Prize for Writing and a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award, among other honors. She writes regularly for The New Yorker, whose editors selected her for their list of 20 under 40 American fiction writers in 2010. Her debut novel, Atmospheric Disturbances, was a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award and the Writer's Trust Fiction Prize, and her story collection, American Innovations, won the Danuta Gleed Literary Award. Both books were New York Times Best Books of the Year. She received an MD from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Born in Toronto, Galchin now divides her time between Montreal and New York City. The story begins in 1618, in the German Duchy of Württemberg. Plague is spreading. The Thirty Years' War has begun, and fear and suspicion are in the air throughout the Holy Roman Empire. In the small town of Leonberg, Katharina Kepler is accused of being a witch. Katharina is an illiterate widow, known by her neighbors for her herbal remedies and the success of her children, including her eldest, Johannes, who is the imperial mathematician and renowned author of the Laws of Planetary Motion. It's enough to make anyone jealous, and Katharina has done herself no favors by being out and about in everyone's business. So when the deranged and insipid Ursula Reinbold, or as Katharina calls her, the werewolf, accuses Katharina of authoring her a bitter, witchy drink that has made her ill, Katharina's in trouble. Her scientist son must turn his attention from the music of the spheres to the job of defending his mother. Facing the threat of financial ruin, torture, and even execution, Katharina tells her side of the story to her friend and next-door neighbor, Simon, a reclusive widower imperiled by his own secrets. Hi, Rivka. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Thank you for having me here. Um, There's so much to talk about with Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, and, you know, for the sake of this interview, I'm just going to call it Everyone Knows. Um, Good. I think I want to start with my own introduction to the book, which was actually through my coworker Daphne. Um, the title alone makes this book so alluring, but what really sold me was when Daphne finished it, she couldn't stop going on about how accessible and enjoyable it was to read. Um, I think when people see Germany 1618 as a setting for a novel, uh, their first thought is probably not that the central voices are going to be very relatable. Uh, which is not the case for everyone knows. And Daphne's praises highlighted just how contemporary the narrative is. Could you expand on that a bit for me? What drove the decision to set a story in 16th century Europe about a septuagenarian that would still retain a certain level of relatable cultural displeasure? Can we call it 21st century (laughs) disillusionment? (laughs) <laughs> it was so funny. You know, uh, I have this friend and she was like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to escape 2016 and run away to 1620. But, you know, it was and I and she was absolutely right, even though it was unconscious on some level um, that there's that there is something sort of like a little bit more in your face about the present moment than about, say, my my childhood in the 90s. I feel like um, it just like I feel like 
our moment as a moment in history feels like a bit more in your face. And there was something about that that was extremely oppressive. And I didn't want to look at it directly. And of course, like looking at something like a scance or triangulating your emotions tends to like work. It's just something that works. And um, I didn't I didn't think of it consciously, but I was just like reading a lot about different scientists and their lives because scientists, I guess, like because they're, you know, ideally in the dream world are kind of pursuing truth or related to truth. And there's a sort of power there. They're often bullied by politicians in history. Mm. They, they go through a lot of um, troubles of a certain kind and cause a lot of trouble of a certain kind. So that's why I was reading about scientists. And then when I came across this story, I was just mesmerized. I, mean, I started thinking of Kepler as Katerina's son. You know, I stopped thinking about... <laughs> um, I stopped thinking about uh, her as his mother. Um, it just really held my attention. I said, okay, I'll just follow that energy, whatever it is. And the decision to to give Katharina such a contemporary voice, did that kind of come naturally? Was that something that you knew you wanted to focus on and make it accessible, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's a good term. Um, you know, that was like very early on that was clear to me. I just thought this is not like dusty and far away. This is very human and family and relatable. And I feel close to it and they felt close to it. And I wanted the book to feel like it might've felt if your own family were in that situation. I just thought like the sort of, I, I, I do sort of love, um, I do love dusty old language. That's strange, <laughs> but it's, but it, but it takes me, it puts my focus on the strangeness. And, and in this particular case, I didn't, that wasn't what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to be inside the story and not like outside the story. Um, so I thought, well, absolutely. Like I'm all, I'm, I'm translate. It's the translation in language, obviously but it's a translation in time. It just seemed obvious to me, to me, I have to translate this in time. And I mean, just kind of expanding on that too. Um, you know, I think we are in this cultural moment where a lot of people in general are finding their own traditions. They're rejecting things that are set, set forth by our parents and antiquated systems that we might see as problematic or unjust or uninclusive. And I, I bring this up and I bring up the earlier question as well, um, because I think it's something that's so relatable with Katharina, um, is there are all these antiquated systems around her that she's fairly vocal in rejecting and that paints a really easy target on her back i think that's something people in younger generations can really relate to you know it sometimes feels like protesting and vocalizing and even voting um you know at best can be weaponized and at worst is fruitless to enact change which you know i i hope it isn't true i don't think it's true i i don't but um there's some level of resentment that exists when people in younger generations are kind of left to their own devices and and really feel like we can't do much in the face of a system that's strong held by people who are in their 50s and 60s um so i mean just kind of to talk a little bit about more about generational disillusionment. Um, you know, how is Katharina at once this stern older Jewish mother and a literal millennial anarchist? 
I love that. That's so funny. And I mean, that, I think it's sort of true. I think she's in, I feel like she's um, in my mind anyway. She's kind of like mm-hmm. almost like an incidental revolutionary. You know, she didn't sort of choose to be widowed. She didn't choose to, she didn't choose to be extremely capable. She didn't choose to be someone who, I actually think of her as someone who, can't read the room very well. So let's say you can't read the room. You're not actually good at reading the social norms. So in a funny way, you become incidentally revolutionary because you're not going to conform to something you can't even read very well. And so I sort of feel like that's why, in my mind, she's just magnetic for me. She has that special personality. And I thought of her as like a math person. I was like, look, her son was a math person and she was probably a math person. And I guess the stereotype of math people is that they're so like devoted to logic and reason that they can't see other things. And of course there are things that are negative about that, but there are things that are positive about that, which is that you're not going to conform to norms because you're not even paying attention to them. You're just like reading the room in a different way. And so, I mean, that's what I loved about her. And I just thought she has like an irreverence and courage that I myself feel like I don't have. Like I felt like when I was writing the Mm. book, she was the character I admired and her sort of fearful, wants to be good, has a good heart but is like very afraid of what other people will say neighbor. That was like in a funny way. I was like, that's kind of me. Like I sort of Mm -hmm. felt like that, that was important to me to be like, well, what is, what is that space of the person who kind of like wants things to be just, wants things to be right, wants them to be fair, but lacks some of, on the one hand, lacks courage. On the other hand, you know, I guess could offer practical advice. It's just like an unusual, uh, it's a predicament that I think a lot of us feel. Like oftentimes there's a terrible, let's say there's terrible injustices that a person themselves might experience. Um, and then, but much larger are all the terrible things going on in the world that aren't happening mm-hmm. to you personally. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you, feel like you said, like, how do you kind of put your little grain of sand on the, on the right side of the justice scale? And that is actually, you know, hard and unclear. So like unclear how to do that sometimes, like you said, like sometimes the very actions that have to do with making that effort to move towards justice get kind of harvested and kind of used on the other side. So yeah, that's uh, it. So that was, I think, some of the emotions that went into the, into the composition. And she is sort of an well, old woman and she has a lot of crazy ideas, but I also feel like she's, she's exited out of a lot of bad ideas too. Well, that's why, you know, I find it so funny that you say as a character, she might be, you know, a little wary of what people might think of her if she says something this way. You know, that's why I use the term like literal anarchist is because (laughs) at times it just seems like she doesn't care. Like it's, it's this level of chaotic honesty that she can't possibly shy away from. And I think that goes along with also (laughs) an inability to read the room. 
Yeah, you know, I think that I love the way you framed it. And I feel like I'm drawn to those people. I'm drawn to those people where you sort of, I feel like, oh, I'm like a more ordinary person. I'm a more normal person. Um, and I wouldn't be able to say that I would feel inhibited and this person isn't inhibited and it really costs them, even though you sort of feel like you really admire them. You see them generating trouble for themselves, but the trouble they generate is so, you can't, you have to kind of agree with them because they're, they're like the child yeah. in the room. They're the child who says the thing that's more true and more accurate and, and, and more good hearted. And, you know, it's not always acceptable. But so genuine. Um, yeah. So, and everyone knows, I, I really loved finding all the ways, and there are many, many ways um, that this book is so incredibly applicable to this post-2020 Anthropocenic era world that we live in. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about cancel culture. Um, and I am going to actively avoid using the term witch hunt in this interview. Um, That's good. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> Uh, so Katharina really is this person whose entire reputation is put on trial just based on hearsay and gossip. Uh, nothing she's accused of is really able to be proven or very, you know, out of context. Uh, but still the people in her community get pretty actively behind her accusations. Um, I think these days we all mostly have issues with the term cancel culture and how clumsily yeah. it's been thrown around in the past several yeah. years. But in what ways was this kind of cultural concept present while you developed the story? Yeah, I mean, it, it was very present. And I think like you are sort of alluding to, it's almost like that phrase, cancel culture, which came to include sort of whatever it was that someone didn't like, but what that mm -hmm. might be was different. Um, kind of made it impossible to make any kind of meaningful or truthful kind of take on it because it just almost became a, an incommunicable area where people were using the same mm -hmm. words and they never seemed to mean the same thing. And, and it was just a mess. And, and for me, that's like a moment when you go into art because you're sort of like, okay, like when I'm sort of using the sort of what, you know, the basically op-ed language, everything feels wrong and everything feels inaccurate. But when I go into the space of characters in a room and of anecdote and of incident, it feels like there's complexity and detail. It feels like a, a respite from the kind of canned, untrue speech that's like kind of, you can't, so I felt like it was like one of those topics that was on, could not be spoken of because the language was ruined. It was like, it was like a, yeah. a kind of Tower of Babel kind of space where everyone had like the same And, and so words. subjective, yeah. Yeah. Everyone had the same seven words and they meant a different thing to every person and it just like couldn't, but I, you know, but of course, I mean, it's not that surprising. Like I did have, um, I did have like, uh, in a, a powerful emotion around, um, a friend who, um, I was persecuted in a sort of irrational and crazy way and they wasn't a me too mm -hmm. case and it wasn't. It wasn't any case like that, but it was, and it was genuinely uh, threatening. And I just, I was like the bystander. And I just remember thinking how much I wanted to help this person and feeling like it was totally unclear how I could. And I think that emotion um, 
was powerful and sort of sent me into this other space to try and work it out. Even jumping off of jumping off of all that, uh, there are clearly these massive moral and ethical dilemmas facing the community at large and everyone knows, and we can definitely apply that to the world today. Um, But specifically in reading the testimonies of the townspeople who are accusing or corroborating the accusations against Katharina, those passages are almost difficult to get through because the reader knows most of these are unfounded or extremely out of context, you know, with the exception of the Schmitz who, who actively come in and say, you know, I don't think you guys are actually listening to this story and are, are seeing what's really happening. Um, the rest of the community is just incredibly self-righteous and really hard-headed in their resolve. Um, so let's just chat for a minute. Uh, about <laughs> What is it about religious ideology that could cause a person to really toss away their morals and ethics in favor of a, you know, quote unquote, religious justice? You know, it was, it was a very moving because the real trial, because it's based on real event. Um, mm-hmm. And because Kepler is sort of a histor- a world historical figure, the trial is preserved in the kind of collected works of Johannes Kepler. And because it's Germany, even in 1618, they had pretty good records. So they don't have a total, um, they don't have all of the words that everyone said, but they have a deposit, you know, they have a kind of shorthand deposition of what um, most people said. And it was just really mesmerizing reading. And I sort of felt like they were, each one was like a kind of a character study of how you might throw your neighbor under the bus. Like they, I sort of felt like some of, some of the people I felt spoke from really did believe what they were, what they were saying. And so I sort of, um, often it came from, there's just an enormous amount of illness, suffering, death, death of babies, it was just when you look at the time, I sort of feel like there's that funny feeling that, oh, babies died all the time then and people died young all the time. So maybe it was OK and maybe people were fine with it. And I think even I felt that way. And then when you mm-hmm. look at the letters people write to one another um, as these things happen, you think, oh, no, just because it was happening all the time, it was still absolutely miserable. And so you kind of I felt like. I, I did. I did, to my surprise, find a tiny bit of tenderness for these characters who were throw for these people who threw her under a bus, basically, because I saw mm-hmm. that they they had some. They had a lot of suffering in their life, and it was quite mysterious. And someone put into their head this idea that there is an explanation for it. And it, it, it's just irresistible. There's something kind of irresistible mm-hmm. about it, especially, as you say, when you're living in a kind of worldview in which there is a reason these things are happening to you. And it's probably because you're bad and you're being punished. So if there's any way out of that narrative, you're going to probably take it. And I saw that, yeah. that like, this kind of opened up this space to get out of that break out of that narrative and say, oh, the reason these bad things are happening isn't God frowning on me. 
or, or maybe it's not God frowning on me. That's what I found the most moving was when there would be the people who had enough char- strength of character to say, well, it might be that God is frowning on me or it might be this other thing. It might be this woman. So, I, I, you know, it was just it was it was chilling and, and, and moving to, to kind of be in touch with those feelings, because if you think about it, it's, it's not just like letting someone suffer is letting someone who mm-hmm. you've like seen walk by your house every single day who you truly know who you who you've watched like take care of their ill father who you've watched kind of gather their great you've watched all those things and you still are open to the idea that these you know that it'll be okay to have this person executed basically mm-hmm. I mean, several yeah. of them are her drinking buddies. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Even as I was writing this interview, Netflix has just released uh, Mike Flanagan's new horror series, Midnight Mass, which is all, you know, the arrival of a charismatic priest brings miracles and mysteries and key words, renewed religious fervor to a dying town. So again, uh, focusing on religious fervor in a small community, there seems to be this common thread when you're telling these stories, where as the paranoia in the community at hand increases, so does this kind of level of religious fundamentalism and uh, the express need for, quote unquote, righteous people to, quote unquote, do good um, by casting out their sinning neighbors. So tying this all together again, can morals and ethics succeed in a place where religious fundamentalism is the norm and is rampant? That's why I'm a fiction writer, because I feel I can't answer the question, (laughs) and it, like, overwhelms me. Um, And I feel just so much more at ease thinking... um, Thinking through sort of details and scenes, um, which doesn't mean I, I sort of feel like it's almost like those are the kinds of questions that drive the like curiosity and the desire to make things. And the, almost like the pleasure of research, this book had like a great deal of kind of research pleasure, even though, uh, mm-hmm. as you sort of point out, it's not like sort of the ha- it's not really the happiest time. And um, Kepler's family were themselves. Lutherans and they were in a relatively kind of tolerant area where there were like some Catholics and some Lutherans and they kind of got along. (laughs) Um, And that was going to fall apart very quickly. It was really kind of the edge of that um, kind of respite uh, from hostility. Mm -hmm. And it was about to sort of become like a a long, a long catastrophe um, in the 30 years war. But uh, like I said, I sort of feel like it's almost like the the way the the whole physical response I feel like in in, in when I hear such like a big question is maybe why I like run to, is maybe why I run to fiction. Um, no, that's a good yeah, answer too. But yeah. I, you know, like like it, it was really it was really if I'm going to pull an example from the book, it, it's the Schmitz, it's the Schmitz, and it's um, Katharina's sister-in-law yeah regina guldenman yeah um who during the testimony says to the interviewer i hope god is listening to you i hope you're afraid and it was people like this who 
you know, I was like, okay, these people have like uh, ethical grounding. They know that there's something wrong with what's going on where it seemed like you know, a ton of other people, including like we said, her drinking buddies were literally like, I saw her riding backwards on a cow. Uh, <laughs> she's done. No, so it was just no. this, this it- question of, yeah, how can you be ethical in a, in a community where fundamentalism is, is what's driving everybody. When it almost kind of, you're almost like reminding me of, of sort of the, the difficulty of talking about cancel culture, right? So like, it seems like Mm -hmm. everyone in that argument from every corner is believing that they're sort of on the side of righteousness. There's literally not a person who doesn't think they're on the righteous side of cancel culture, whatever that might be. And so (laughs) it's, it feels like it's almost like what gets revealed or like burns away when you realize, okay, like it can't actually quite, you know, there must be some way through this, through this muck besides listening to people's confidence that they're the ones who are righteous. And it's almost like you see a structure, which is that um, suddenly there's a new power in the room. So I feel like at the time of Katarina Kepler, there was this power, um, there was this power to access the judicial system, which we think of as a positive thing that became a very negative thing. Um, And kind of, it's like both wonderful and horrible that like anyone can push that button. Anyone can push that button and get those wheels rolling. And, you know, it's almost like we saw this, like you talked about this at the beginning of the interview. It felt like something quite positive and powerful was happening that people without a lot of access to power were able to tap into this Mm -hmm. public sphere in order to basically get the wheels of justice rolling because the actual legal system had failed them or, or the institutional system. I mean, it depends like in each case, but they didn't have access. And then suddenly they did have access and it was thrilling, right? It was like a very thrilling moment. Um, It's power. And then all of a sudden you were like, Oh yeah, now I remember any power can be corrupted, will be corrupted, and it's going to happen quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, there's just the actual structure of power itself, like, is already unjust. So it's like this tricky thing where, like, to kind of move towards justice, you need access to power, and then power itself, like, cancels the ethics. Like, it becomes immediately a problem. So... I don't know. I found the like, le- I actually found learning about the legal system at that time quite moving because you saw mm-hmm. so many really good faith attempts to make it better. To, you know, they actually had like pretty kind of like good ideas about how to make sure someone didn't end up executed for crimes they didn't commit. And mm-hmm. they were like, mm-hmm. In retrospect, now they seem like crazy to us. But at the time, <laughs> like in a, in a funny way, the fact that they were like, well, we can't take the testimony of women and children seriously, which is horrible, was actually a good faith attempt to be like, <laughs> well, we don't want, you know, we don't want to sort of like burn people as witches because totally unimportant people we shouldn't trust and so or whatever. So it's just like so convoluted and, and interesting and to see that even 
even sort of good faith moves had bad faith built into them and yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and I think, yeah, you know, it's kind of like we're talking about it seemed, it seems really inevitable for a lot of these characters that even if they're trying to do good by, you know, ratting out Katharina, they're still ethically and morally in this very dark place where they are willing to condemn a person for very little. Um, it was actually funny, you know, like, that weird era, I mean, you know the process of how an interview goes. We read the book, we go through it, we're, we're highlighting, we're, we're, we're pulling quotations. Um, and so when I started writing this interview, I am like, you know, I haven't even gotten to it yet, but I have like an Immanuel Kant quote in here okay. talking about <laughs> ethics and morality. And, you know, and I know you had just said also, this is kind of your cue to escape to fiction, right? Um, but uh, so much of this book ends up being philosophical, and there are big philosophical questions. Was that an intentional thing that you were doing, or was that did that just happen because of the setting that you're in? Well, like you said, like I feel like um, what you're running away from, like whether you like it or not, determines your course. Like it literally says. It, it like literally made you move and it's like determined what direction you're moving in. So of course, like, I feel like the thing I'm like es escaping or whatever, or like afraid of is more present than anything else. Like it's actually like at the center um, of everything, almost like a trauma, right? Like you're walking around it and finally you find out you've basically drawn like a picture of it because you've sort of like done your like perimeter walk. Um. So I think that's why it's not that surprising, although I have a relatively like unconscious writing process, but I think it's not that surprising that those concerns ended up being so, so, so central to the book. It was like really important to me to hear the sound of how different characters grappled with that really strong human drive. I think to be a good person, I think it's a quite common drive. Mm -hmm. And, a, you know, wonderful drive, but a dysfunctional one that goes awry all the time. And so <laughs> I, I felt like almost with every character, it was another attempt to hear them arguing to themselves and like explaining to themselves why um, they were in the realm of ethical and appropriate behavior and why they were doing the right thing. And um, And sometimes the pleasure is like, of course, like seeing the incorrect moves they make in their logic, and that is yeah. is is pleasurable um, in some strange and probably vexed way. Um, and 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 sometimes it was because I felt like I, like the character, had kind of genuinely run into a wall. I sort of thought like I actually can't chart the ethical path here, and I wonder mm -hmm. what what that what that is like where is the wall and what does it look like and and that's why I, I was really interested in this kind of character of the of the neighbor who is sort of outside but inside and I wanted like a relatively nice person there <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I think you know this is 
No, I, I'm lying. We're going to, we have a little bit more philosophy to get through, but just a little okay. bit. And this is a fun <laughs> one, I swear. Um, yeah. This is the Immanuel Kant thing is um, Kant says, he who is cruel to animals becomes also hard in his dealings with men. We can judge the heart of a man by his treatment of animals. And this is why, like, this is a fun kind of question that we can get specific on. Um, animals are used frequently in everyone knows to illustrate that fact. Exactly. Um, what does Katharina's relationship with animals and specifically chamomile, her cow, tell us about her heart? How does this concept warn us of the hearts of others? Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love that quote that you pulled up. And, and uh, it's funny. I was actually just, uh, just like a friend of mine wrote to me and, and said like very sweetly, she's like, thank you for not killing the cow. I was really <laughs> afraid that there would be violence towards the animal. And she said, so thank you for not doing that. And, and I was thinking about, um, I don't know how if it may be apocryphal or maybe true and it's probably both, but the mm-hmm. sort of image of Nietzsche at the end of his life, sort of suffering from neurosyphilis and, or probably neurosyphilis and, and weeping it, upon seeing like a, a horse being beaten um, mm-hmm. and the way that that moment feels. So anyways, it, the way that there's something, you know, so often it's framed that like being able to feel for animals is like the characteristic of the, the strangely broken person who's lost the ability to feel yeah. for people. I feel like that's like a trope that's out there and, and I'm sure it has some correlates in the world. But, um, you know, when I, you know, I realized that it was, it was kind of like this fantasy that I felt like I, I totally knew Katerina, but I had this like deranged <laughs> idea that I totally knew who she was and I felt like I knew her voice. And the place it came from was a little detail uh, because she was illiterate. There's no letters from her. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to find her voice in the record, but somewhere there was a detail that when she was a little girl, one of the things that she did was gather brush uh, to make the area where the animals were warmer. It's like a kind of insulation. And it was so moving to me and such like a affirming sign of my fantasy of who she was and of her character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in a, and in a sense, it's like also like a, an example of like a test of having a tremendous amount of power over another creature. I feel like that's part of what we learn about when we relate to animals is we have a lot of power over them. And so it's a test of how you prevent yourself from using that power in the wrong way or don't take advantage of it. So that just seemed really important to me. Her relationship to to animals seemed really important to me. And of course, like it was a time where like there were no vegetarians then I mean, yeah. I, you oh, read right. and read, you read and read and you think surely someone yeah. said to themselves, I'm not going to be the meat <laughs> eater. Um, and I, I, you know, I just couldn't find any evidence of, of that. And I, I just thought, well, you know, I wonder what, I just sort of wondered like how, how it was at that moment in time to relate to these different animals. And, and, and there were people who hated cats and viewed them as evil and did terrible things mm-hmm. to them and mm-hmm. saw them as witchy. And then there were, but not everyone. And that seemed important to me. And so I thought, well, this is like a, it just seemed obvious to me as like a space where we saw something about a person. There is this great passage on 
page 169, um, Catherine is staring with her daughter-in-law and her granddaughter in Linz, but reflecting on her situation and her accusation, um, the death of a pig 25 years ago had been attributed to Katharina Kepler too. That poor woman from Leonberg. I felt bad for her, but I didn't think she was me. Reality was closer at hand, is this quote that I keep coming back to. Um, it is this moment when, yes, Katharina is going through something difficult and traumatic, but also life continues. Um, she plays with her granddaughter. She tends to the animals. She's enjoying her time in Linz uh, while in her hometown. She's pariah. There's this cognitive dissonance that happens um, when the piece of reality simultaneously is happening during a life-changing event. So how had living through a pandemic affected your writing? And did you experience any of this? Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, you, you never sort of, I, I again, I, I'm sort of like a, a, a dumb writer or like a fool. And then like later I'm like, oh, I sort of get it. I like see what was going on, you know, like as if it's like a different person. And, uh, you know, actually like the very sad truth, I actually had like, I, I feel almost guilty. I had, I would say like one of the easiest, one of the easiest pandemics, you know, my work is easy to do at home. I, um, mm -hmm. I, I like the people I live with, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I had, I was, I was very fortunate. And, um, my neighbor who I love, uh, very much, um, and they had a horrible pandemic and the, and the, and the husband had a terrible cancer and was young and there were children. It was just like a horrible thing going on right next door. And I can't tell you sort of how, many more jokes and how much laughter and just how much fun we were having together. Like it was almost like this neighbor because she was going through so much. It almost generated like a counter energy. Like even just, I think, mm -hmm. I think of it as like a healthy survival strategy where this, how deep the misery was generated this ability to, to exit it like a kind of healthy denial but it's not really a denial because where is all that like intense anxiety anxious energy coming from and it was sort of obviously mm -hmm. coming from from the room so I think that that was on my mind even though consciously the only thing I remember thinking when I was writing the book was as I was researching the time period I thought you know as horrible as being accused of a witch was and as horrible <laughs> as it was to face the prospects of her own death, I feel like it's not the worst thing that happened to her during that period. Mm -hmm. And um, especially like as an older woman or as, you know, she, you know, as a, as, you know, she was a mother who had lost children and, and uh, I actually had to condense the misery of the Kepler's lives. I was like, it's just going to be like a pornography of suffering and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they faced like more than I put in the book during that period. And, and uh, I think that was just like an important moment for me when I was sort of thinking about how their inner lives were built and what, what affected them um, to realize that in a funny way, when only, when she's only being persecuted as a witch, in a sense, she's brought back to kind of baseline and has room for the small pleasures of everyday life. When you see her relationship with Marushal like really, really blossom. And it's funny, I had this question 
as a, as a separate question for you. Um, but it is that this book is funny. Um, it's a dark and serious subject matter, but your characters are just infused with this humor that is sarcastic and annoyed, but blunt and whimsical. And it's clear that Katharina uses humor to deal with dark times, you know, in brackets to the ire of everyone around her. <laughs> clearly, this is, you know, but, yeah. but out, of, out of the story, it's clearly this beautiful kind of quality that I think you and this character share. And it's just really interesting to hear that coming from you. No, it was so essential to me. You know, I was, I, I, uh, I mean, I didn't, I never have like a plan, but her voice came to me like that. It came to me sort of like one part Leonore Carrington character, one part kind of math nerds I've known and loved, you know, it just sort of like all came together. And, and, uh, I don't know, like the people in the people in in my life or whatever are are, are people like I, I think about like you know Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton to use like the sort of like seminal people like their lives were not happy. The situations depicted in their movies are not happy, and that's mm-hmm. like the stuff of comedy. And that it's almost like that's the that's. That's that's what comedy is made of. It's like a survival strategy, and I thought, who who develops the survival strategy best? Um, are the people that have had to put it to use again and again. So, and it was important to me that her humor isn't cruel. There's like cruel humor. That's like another kind of humor. Yeah, but I yeah, felt yeah. Like hers is it. Hers is like a cracked humor. <laughs> Again, it's just very sarcastic yeah. and very kind of like I I don't care what you think. Please, just leave me out of your thoughts, but I'm going to tell you exactly what's on my mind. My mind. (laughs) I really love ending this interview at this place where we can still find this this joy in in this story about dark times and the the humor of the era that Katharina lived in, married to the tragedy and, and, you know, the, the marriage of tragedy and humor that we also live in. It's Thank you, you know, thank you for, for this book. It, it was lovely. It was an incredible reading experience. And even today, um, earlier today, I had one of my regulars come into the bookstore and she'd finished it this morning. And I was on my laptop and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just finishing up my questions for my Rivka interview today. And she was Aww. like, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited that Aww, she loved it. It's really impactful. That's so, um, that's so moving to me. That's just very moving to me. Cause you know, it's like a, it's, uh, you know, writing is like whistling in the dark and it's so great. If like mm-hmm. the lights turn on, there's all these other people in the dark with you and you think that's so, that's like a wonderful <laughs> feeling. And you know, we've only ever produced this podcast in, in 2021. So I also speak to a lot of authors who, who don't get a lot of in-person feedback and, you know, you're unfortunately not probably jumping around to a bunch of bookstores doing readings and doing signings as, as you would be. So it's, it's difficult to hear the reaction on the ground, but as somebody who's on the ground, let me tell you. (laughs) That's very sweet. I'm very pleased. (laughs) Good. All right. Well, thank you so much again for talking to me today. Um, Listeners, you can pick up. Everyone knows your mother is a witch at St. Henry books. We've got, 
lots of copies. I love to hand sell these babies, especially for spooky season. And uh, hopefully next time you're in Montreal, I can get you to come in and sign all of them. I would love to. I'd love to just come over. Um, thank you. It was such a fun conversation. It was super fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.